Let's bow together in prayer for a moment. Our Father, we come to you this morning so thankful for the opportunity to gather together in worship. It is the single greatest privilege we have on this earth as it is a privilege purchased by the death of our Savior, Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, that as we look into your word this morning, it would be with a sense of awe and wonder and humility and deference to you. May we be those driven to obey out of love for our Heavenly Father. I pray that the words that are spoken this morning would reflect only the truths of Scripture, only those things that are heavenly and lofty and right and true, and that you would continue to work out that process of making us more and more like Christ, of transforming us from one degree of glory to another until that day when we see Christ face to face and become like Him. Be blessed this morning with our listening ears and bless us with your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I just don't believe I can love that person at any level. I'll hope the best for him, but I refuse to love him. Of course, I told several people what she did to me. I was just telling the truth. Truth isn't slander. She doesn't deserve the kindness I've been giving her. Soon it's going to run out. I'm just about fed up. I'm going to reconcile this relationship, but I'll do it from a distance. Will that separation in time heal the relationship? He needs to experience the same pain he's put me through. Now, if those sound like phrases from a secular counseling session, unfortunately, you would be mistaken. These are statements made to me by church members in counseling sessions. These are summaries of statements that are are burned into my memory because of how incongruent, how incompatible those sort of vengeful, self-righteous statements are with being a new creation in Christ. To be so filled with anger and indignation that spiritual deception is now set in deeply, bitterness, resentment, growing and growing to the detriment of the soul of the professing believer. Jesus understood this issue. He understood our propensity toward evil. And he addressed this issue. And I'd like to use his words to do that If you're not already there, turn to Matthew 5. And today we're considering verses 43 through 48 to the end of the chapter. But those verses really continue a theme that Jesus began in verse 38, which we examined a few weeks ago. And so I'd like to read that entire passage beginning in verse 38 because it really goes to one major theme. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your garment also. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And our text for this morning. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, Jesus is continuing his overall theme in Matthew 5 of giving new covenant law. That believers under the coming new covenant of Christ are to live by a different ethic than the rest of the world. This is not so much a commentary on the Old Testament. This isn't a contradiction of the Old Testament. It is new covenant law. And six times in this chapter, he says, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. And he says often, but I say to you, it's not in contradiction. It is to give new covenant law. 
unless he's correcting a misuse of Scripture, which we'll look at here in a moment this morning. We're to live by a different ethic than the rest of the world. The desire, the motivation, the willingness, the joy to live life under new covenant law, this operates very much as a test of authentic Christianity. And that's been our theme in Matthew 5, the test of genuine faith. And so we've gone through various tests, various ways to test your faith. And today I'd like to home in on the command of Christ to love your enemies. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to leave the false believer, the fraud, with no ground to stand on. Nothing about which to boast. He's going to level the ability for anyone to say, I'm a good person because I love a lot of people. He's going to take that away completely. Now, this brings up the question, what enemy is Jesus speaking of? Well, specific to us as New Covenant believers in Christ, What enemies might Jesus be referring to? Enemies which require that we look to the standard of Christ to deal with in righteousness. Well, we could categorize several. There are the clear enemies of the cross. Those who are currently willfully rejecting the gospel of Christ. But notice I said enemies of the cross, not your enemies. How you interact with them really largely depends on how they treat you, how they interact with you. Some might be very nice people. They might even be attracted to you as you bring a a regenerate, godly life to bear in their lives. Others, on the other hand, might be hostile. And all the more so, the more you proclaim your faith in Christ. Then there are those who simply treat you like enemies. Those who reject you, mistreat you, malign you, slander you. Maybe this is someone who's wronged you and he absolutely doesn't think he's done anything wrong and pridefully refuses to reconcile at any humble point of agreement. That person, as we're going to see, is in spiritual danger because a continued effort to stubbornly do those things speaks heavily to the state of their soul. Or we might be talking about someone who's just less than friendly, perhaps cool or distant. Maybe this is a form of vengeful punishing you for displeasing them. This might be a temporary situation. It might last a few minutes, a few hours. It might be longer range, lasting months, years, or even decades. The fact is, is that you must be prepared to honestly deal with enemy-like behavior, even in the church. And enemies come from two sources. The first source Those in the church with which you get into relational difficulties or continued unreconciled conflict. And the other source is you. And whatever part you play in that sort of ungodly response to fellow believers or fellow professing believers at least. I enjoy preaching topics that I know hits every single person close to home. Because nobody in this room is exempt from this topic. Undoubtedly, we have all dealt with both sources of pain, others and ourselves. And so really what we're doing today is simultaneously calling the potentially false believer to discard an old spiritual confidence based on what a nice person you are or based on the fact that you love almost everyone with love and kindness. And this text is going to call on believers to stop acting like unbelievers in this regard, to genuinely test your own heart of obedience, to genuinely look to your own selves. But the angle I'd like to explore this morning from this text is what we'll just call spiritual confidence. Confidence in your salvation, confidence that you've truly been made a new creation in Christ. I'd like to organize our time loosely into four parts, three of which revolve around false confidence and the last one around true confidence. So the first part, we'll just call the deception of false confidence. The deception of false confidence. Verse 43, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, as you're looking at your Bibles, you may notice In most of your Bibles, if not all of them, the first part is in all capitals and the rest is lowercase. Why is that? Well, most Bible publishers use all capitals in the New Testament to indicate a quote or a near quote directly from the Old Testament text or maybe a combination of Old Testament texts. So, you shall love your neighbor is a quote from the Law of Moses in Leviticus 19.18. 
But traditionally, by the time Jesus comes on the scene, it had been combined with a statement not found anywhere in the Old Testament, and hate your enemy. That statement, and hate your enemy, is rightfully in lowercase letters because it's not representative of Scripture. What it represents is a gross misuse of a couple of passages in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 23, a couple of verses in Psalm 139. I'm going to come back to Psalm 139 in a while. But what we're dealing with here is deception. It's deception based on a misuse and a mischaracterization of Scripture. It's the worst kind of deception. It's the kind of deception that Satan has been using for millennia against people to twist the words of God for his own purposes. Now, how do you deal with the misuse of Scripture? The, the way you deal with the misuse of Scripture is to blow the lid off the misuse and to understand the actual context. And so I want to take a, a moment here and do that. Turn with me back to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 3. Now, Deuteronomy 23 is dealing with the pure people of God and what qualifies a person to enter into the official assembly, the official worship of Yahweh. God is protecting the holiness, He's protecting the purity, He's protecting the integrity of His people because He is holy, He is pure, He is filled with integrity. And so we have a specific example of God protecting the purity of His people. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of Yahweh, even to the tenth generation. None of their seed shall ever enter the assembly of Yahweh. Because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pithor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, Yahweh your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but Yahweh your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because Yahweh your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. The Ammonites and the Moabites are both descended from Ammon and Moab, cousins who are also brothers because they were born of the incestuous union of Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's daughters. Now, although that was a horrible beginning, a sinful beginning to these peoples, there is still a family obligation. The Ammonites and the Moabites were related to the Israelites through Lot's and Abraham's family. But when Israel was escaping Egypt and headed toward Canaan, instead of giving the expected help, instead of giving the expected hospitality to the Israelites, the Moabites and the Ammonites treated Israel like an enemy. And not only did they not help, they weren't just neutral. They were aggressive. They hired a false prophet, Balaam, to try to pronounce a curse on Israel as recorded in Numbers 22. And I say try to pronounce a curse because you recall the story. Every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse God's people, a blessing came out instead. And those that hired him said, hey, that's not what we're paying you for here. God turned the attempted curse into a blessing time and time again. And now, in Deuteronomy 23, the God who never forgets anything pronounces a national permanent reprimand to the nations of Ammon and Moab, to the tenth generation, which essentially means forever. That as national entities, they were never to receive kind treatment from Israel. Now, this is not a matter of Israel being filled with emotional hatred toward the Ammonites or the Moabites. But it's a decree of God that Israel was to obey. And funny enough, as you, if you know the Old Testament, you know that Israel didn't obey very much. But this is one thing they did obey. They were pretty consistent with this. Historically, they were faithful. Judges 10 and 11 record that the Ammonites were one of several peoples that God brought against Israel to punish Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. But Israel repented, cried out to God for help, and the judge of Israel, Jephthah, he crushed the Ammonites and he conquered 20 of their cities in Judges 11. 2 Samuel 10 rec records that the new young king of the Ammonites decided to try to make his mark in the world and flex his muscles a little bit. King David sent a delegation to them to be friendly. And this young king sent them back in humiliation, shaving off half their beards, cutting off half their garments so that they were exposed from the waist down, walking all the way home like that. What did David do? He crushed them. He crushed the Ammonites in battle. 
Second Kings 1 and 3 records that after the death of King Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, after the split of the kingdom, the Moabites saw this as their chance and they rebelled against Israel. Well, the army of Moab was flattened and Israel tore down all the Moabite cities in retribution. So generally speaking, Israel was faithful to this edict. But those were national conflicts. That Ammon and Moab as nations were not to receive kind treatment from Israel. But this decree in Deuteronomy 23, it doesn't speak to individuals. Anyone, anyone could qualify themselves as converts to be Yahweh worshipers. But God still protected the ethnic identity of Israel so that Israel was truly made up of descendants of Abraham. So yes, you may convert to a biblical Judaism but you did not enter into the official assembly. We know one Moabite in this category, don't we? The young lady, Ruth. And she did quite well, actually. She married a leading citizen of Bethlehem, Boaz. She became the great-grandmother of King David. No doubt that Ruth was highly welcomed among the people, although it's still likely without access to the assembly because of this decree. Now, there is a possibility There's a possibility that although the book of Ruth calls Ruth the Moabitess, that perhaps some grace was shown to her, she makes a famous statement in Ruth chapter 1 to her mother-in-law, Naomi. She says, your people shall be my people and your God my God. This may indicate that Ruth forsook her Moabite identity altogether. But it doesn't matter. In either case, the national decree against the Moabites and the Ammonites is a long, long way From across the board, hate your enemies. That's a totally different universe. Deuteronomy 23 is not a full treatment of the concept of hatred. People had taken a text or two, misapplied it out of context to create this new Jewish ethic, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is a distortion of Scripture, a misuse of Scripture to deceive the masses into what you might call a self-righteous theology of nationalism which gave no room for anyone but a Jew to be considered worthy of God's attention. By the way, the people in Jesus' day, by the time he is preaching this sermon, they were convinced, especially by their Jewish leaders, generations of them, they were convinced, based on this twisted standard, that they were truly righteous if they loved their neighbor and hated everyone who was not Jewish. So they were deceived at the highest level of spiritual self-awareness. Turn back to Matthew 5 now. This is a deception. We've seen the deception of false confidence. The second part I'd like to show you, I'll call the disclosure of false confidence. The disclosure of false confidence. Jesus is going to disclose the filthiness of the hearts of all who are false. He's going to give a standard which discloses and exposes the true heart. That if you do these things from a genuine heart of obedience to the Lord, you belong to the Lord. But if you don't, then you don't belong to him. You're not included in the new covenant. Your salvation is false. Your confidence is baseless. Verse 44. And you can hear the collective jaws dropping to the ground when he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is unheard of. This is not the ethic that was taught by the Pharisees. This is speaking of love, which is generous, which is warm, which is costly, which is sacrificial. This is love, which is done for another's good. And you get two aspects here. You get love as the horizontal relational obligation. Love is something that you do. And you get prayer, which is the vertical relational obligation. And why do you pray? Why do you pray for those who persecute you? Because it softens your heart. You can't keep bringing someone else to the throne of grace asking God for help in their lives without having a soft heart towards them. That's why Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. It's a means by which you begin to wish for the mercy of God on that person to be reminded that they need God's mercy. Whether they're a believer who's treating you as an enemy or an unbeliever who truly is an enemy of God. You praying for them changes your own heart. It brings you in line with God's grace, with God's mercy. 
And so Jesus is revealing the heart. He's disclosing any false confidence that someone might have. The true believer has a completely different ethic, a a completely different bent toward those who act in enemy-like fashion. The Jewish leaders over time had perverted the the law of God to, to be a law which was generally a disdain for everyone but self. In fact, the Pharisees and the Essenes, they were two different groups within Judaism. They didn't agree on a lot, but one thing they did agree on is that the Jew didn't even have to love all Jews. That you could restrict that even further. That your neighbor is now defined as someone who does the things you think they ought to do. What does that sound like? It sounds like an unbeliever, doesn't it? But I want to be very clear. It's not as though Jesus is now introducing a, a completely brand new concept. The only reason their jaws are dropping is because they weren't believing Scripture. They were believing what tradition had told them. They were believing what the Pharisees and the scribes had been telling them for generations. But this isn't new. The faithful Israelite of the Old Testament did have lawful duties concerning love if they were truly attempting to keep the law out of love for Yahweh. The new covenant in Christ brings some new revelation to the table, but not a new spirit of how a true follower of Yahweh was to behave. I'd like to prove this to you and take a little bit of a digression. I'd like to walk through what we might call a theology of enemies or a theology of hatred from the Old Testament because it's not what you think and it's much more nuanced certainly than what Jewish leaders taught the people to simply hate your enemies. Now, first I want to show you some major pieces to this theology from the Old Testament, but then I want to come back and show you the new covenant implications because there are many. So let me give you four major pieces to a theology of enemies or a theology of hatred from Israel's vantage point as a nation, the chosen holy nation of God. The first major piece we'll call severed diplomatic relations. Severed diplomatic relations. This describes having a severe, unfriendly attitude toward national enemies. Those who genuinely hope for the destruction of Israel or those who have historically and habitually mistreated God's people. God commanded Israel in Exodus 34 verse 12, Beware lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. Israel was not going to Canaan to make friends. They were not going on a diplomatic mission. They were going to take back the land that Abraham had deeded to them many years before. And they were going to be the instrument of God's justice and judgment against wicked peoples. God commanded the second generation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7.2, When Yahweh your God gives them over before you and you strike them down, then you shall devote them to destruction. You shall cut no covenant with them and show no favor to them. We've already seen from Deuteronomy 23 what the attitude toward the Ammonites and the Moabites was to be. God's chosen nation was not to make treaties, not to make covenants with nations who were antithetical to God's purposes for Israel. But again, severed diplomatic relations really has nothing to do with the emotion of hatred as much as just following God's commands for the nation of Israel, with Israel being the instrument of justice for God very often. There's a second piece to a theology of enemies. Spiritual separation. Spiritual separation. This is a a loyalty to God as expressed by siding with him. A good example is Psalm 139, 21 and 22. And this is likely one of the scriptures misused by the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day to lead to the common saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Psalm 139, 21 says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Yahweh? And do I not revile those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. That sounds a lot like emotional hatred, doesn't it? But the context of Psalm 139 tells the fuller story. And remember, when Scripture is taken out of the context, you blow the lid off of it by going to the actual text. David is the author of Psalm 139. And going back a couple of verses, David beseeches God to deal swiftly with wicked men. Men who are pursuing David. They're coming after him. David just wants to be left alone. Psalm 139, 19, he wishes prayerfully, Oh, men of bloodshed, depart from me. 
And then at the end of Psalm 139, David asked the Lord to judge his heart, to review his motives, to test him, to test his inner self. Am I being wicked in my own heart? There's one instance in David's life which most appropriately fits those exact sentiments of wishing that those seeking his life would just stop, of saying, may God judge my heart as compared to yours. That instance is found in 1 Samuel 24. This is the first of two times that David has the opportunity to kill King Saul, the wicked king of Israel who was pursuing David to murder him. Saul had come into a cave alone in which David was hiding. And you recall David came up behind him and cut the edge of Saul's robe off without Saul's knowledge to prove that he could have killed Saul. Now this is why context is everything. Yes, in Psalm 139, David proclaims his total loyalty to God that those that God hates, then David will hate. But David's actual interaction with Saul is not hateful in the least. Listen to this from 1 Samuel 24. David speaks to Saul from a distance now. Now, my father, see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that that there is no evil or transgression in my hand. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May Yahweh judge between you and me, and may Yahweh avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? After a dead dog? After a single flea? Therefore Yahweh be judge and execute justice between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and execute justice for me to escape from your hand. David, loyal to God alone, still pleads with Saul. You notice what he calls him? He calls him my father. David had married one of Saul's daughters and still pleads with him and calls him father. He still invokes God as judge. David is not the judge. God is. And so, yes, there's a spiritual separation. David loves the Lord. David is loyal to the Lord. Saul is loyal only to himself and he's abandoned the things of God. And yet David leaves justice to God and to God alone. So Psalm 139 cannot be used to paint the simplistic picture of hate your enemies. Here's a third piece to a theology of enemies or or a theology of hatred. And we'll call this individual mercy and kindness. Individual mercy and kindness. What was the Israelite to do with the person even from an undesirable nation? What was he to do with that individual? Leviticus 19.34, the law says, the sojourner, the traveler, the foreigner who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you and you shall love him as yourself for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. God gave the internal heart attitude using the example of finding an enemy's animal. This is like finding a bag of gold that doesn't belong to you. This is very, very valuable. Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. In other words, you're to be helpful. You're not to take personal revenge even when the the door is clearly open for you to do so. The book of Proverbs expounds on this principle and what will be very familiar to you because it's reiterated in the New Covenant, the New Testament. Proverbs 21, 25 rather, verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. And you will heap burning coals on his head and Yahweh will repay you. We just read that this morning in Romans. Israel was to be set apart. They were to be different. And treating an individual enemy differently could lead to many enemy in the nation desiring to come to faith in God. This is so different than love your neighbor and hate your enemies. So very different. Here's a, a fourth piece to a theology of enemies. We'll call this favored versus not favored. 
favored versus not favored. In this piece of theology of enemies, we have an uncomfortable word that the Bible uses, and that is hate. Now, the Legacy Standard Bible translates the word hate sometimes as unloved. Deuteronomy 21.15, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved or hated, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, and it goes on to give laws on this, we remember that Jacob had two wives, Rachel and Leah, the sisters. Leah is characterized as the hated or the unloved wife. Just simply means less favored. Now, I walked through this Old Testament theology of enemies because this call to love your neighbors and hate your enemies is an absolutely destructive oversimplification How to treat your enemies was much more nuanced than that, required much more wisdom than the simple black and white rule, which frankly, lots of unbelievers go by. So how do these principles of theology of enemies apply in the new covenant context in light of Jesus' teaching? Well, let's walk back through them. Severed diplomatic relations. Severed diplomatic relations. The church is living in an era in which the citizens of all nations are called to be good citizens, to be light and salt wherever you're planted. One of the errors of making the church somehow the new Israel is that this doesn't account for the fact that Israel was and will be a national entity, a national representative. The church was never called to be an earthly nation. In fact, we can prove this. Christians send missionaries to the diplomatic enemies of the United States all the time because we're fighting a spiritual battle, a battle that transcends national relationships. In fact, the diplomatic enemies of the United States often prove to be the most fertile ground for the gospel. God will deal with the enemies of Israel, the national entity which he's concerned for. That's not our problem. It's not our issue. What about spiritual separation? In the church... Those who have previously publicly identified as being in Christ, belonging to Christ, and yet are found to be unrepentant as those who are sexually immoral, greedy, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, cheats, were commanded in 1 Corinthians 5.11 not even to eat with such a one. And verse 13, to remove the wicked man from yourselves. And what's the purpose of this? It's to have that person feel the effects of separation from the body of Christ. And hopefully leading to repentance. And even more importantly is the purpose of Christ wanting a purified bride, a purified church, not a false church filled with frauds. Toward this end, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now in context here, Paul is pleading with the Corinthians to stop receiving and listening to false apostles. But the broader application is that you can't enter into any sort of official spiritual partnership with the unbeliever. This is why we don't try to raise funds for the gospel ministry from unbelievers. We don't send our kids to stand outside Walmart to get money for the church. We don't have partnership with the world. This is why we don't get to a certain hymn and Darren doesn't say this hymn brought to you by Target. We don't say that. What partnership can we have? Not, no official partnership. This is why we'll certainly endorse the wedding between two believers in Christ. We'll even endorse the wedding between two professing unbelievers because marriage is not given to believers. Marriage is given to humanity, but never will we endorse the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. What fellowship does darkness have with light? How about the concept of individual mercy and kindness? Individual mercy and kindness. You know, the Samaritans in Jesus' day were considered completely persona non grata, which means an unwelcome person, as a people by the Jews. And yet, um, in John 4, Jesus proclaimed the gospel to a Samaritan woman at the well. And as a result, many came to faith in Christ because she shared the goodness and the kindness of Jesus with others. Peter commanded Jewish believers in 1 Peter 2.12 to Keep your conduct excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, 
they may, because of your good works as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. To glorify God has implications for coming to saving faith in Christ because you were so kind to them. You were so gracious. And particularly in the church, never, ever, ever is there a call to be anything but gracious and kind and loving, even toward those who seem to lean toward treating you like an enemy. And yes, to exercise church discipline on the, the wayward is the most loving thing that the church can do. We read earlier Paul's quote of Proverbs 21 in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Let me put it to you this way. The governor of the state of California today is as wicked a man as I've ever seen in public office. And if he becomes the next president of the United States, and you know, we used to joke about running from California. Well, where are you going to run now? Because there isn't any place to go. In the mysterious plan of God, our sovereign God has placed a dark, heinous, wicked, godless man as the governor of our state. But if he was to have a flat tire outside your home, what do you do? You ask him if he's hungry or if he's thirsty. You feed him. You give him shelter. You help him. You change his tire for him. You're friendly. You're kind. You're gracious. You show a spirit of, of goodness to him. And what about the concept of favored versus not favored? I think this may be one we misunderstand in the church more than any of them. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He gets even clearer in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He's not speaking of emotional hatred. He's speaking of less favored. Are you going to favor Christ or are you going to favor your family? You can love both. You can only favor one. The regenerate believer in Christ cannot succumb to the lie of family idolatry. The lie of blood is thicker than water. No, for the Christian, the blood of Christ is thicker than family. It must be. This is not a call to be unloving to your family, but it is a call to favor Christ even over family. By the way, there's another nuance to favored versus not favored, and that is that our first priority in this world is God's people. Many churches have got it backwards in saying that our first priority is the lost. The lost are definitely a priority. They're not the first priority. Paul wrote in Galatians 6.10, So then, while we have an opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's the new covenant ethic which Jesus so succinctly teaches. I had to go all over the place. He boils it down to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Show individual love. Pray for those who treat you like an enemy. And if this is something you don't desire, something you don't want to submit to, then I would say that your confidence in your salvation is false and it should be a concern to you. So we've seen the deception of false confidence, the disclosure of false confidence. I'd like to show you now the destruction of false confidence. The destruction of false confidence. I know it doesn't seem like it now, but when I was a kid, I was a bit of a daredevil. I didn't know how badly you could get hurt. I wasn't paying for my health insurance, so I didn't really think about it. And like many of you, I learned the fine art of popping a wheelie, of how to ride around on that back tire of your bicycle. I not only learned the art of how to do that, I learned how to look around and gloat to my friends while I was doing it as well. And once while showing off this skill in front of my friends, my front tire simply fell off and rolled away. I... <laughs> I can't describe the sinking feeling to you because I'm still up in the air and doing fine and all your pride goes out the window because all my friends were laughing their heads off at me at that moment. Even before my bicycle made very solid contact with the ground and before I made very solid contact with the ground. But I'll never forget that feeling. I, I still remember the, the, the wheel went off to the left, I think, and I can just see it rolling away. And like... 
Your emotions change completely. You have nothing to stand on. And you know what's about to happen. Jesus is about to remove the front tire from the pride of anyone who thinks that they have confidence in their salvation because they treat certain people or even most people with kindness and love. Skip down to verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In two sentences, he just destroyed the Jewish argument of having natural spiritual favor with God based on ethnicity because he says any Jew who only does what he describes in verses 46 and 47 is the same as a tax collector or a Gentile. To a Jew, you're saying the very worst people of all. And he levels any attempt at self-righteousness because of loving those closest to you or those you decide are worthy of your love. He says even unbelievers do that. Even unbelievers I want to show you something I think ties in very well with this. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. And in Luke 10, Jesus touches on the subject of loving your neighbor in one of the most famous of Jesus' parables. Luke 10, 25. There's a couple of details I want to point out here, so I'll just read the whole parable. Luke 10, 25, And behold, a scholar of the law stood up and putting him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him in his, on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Now, obviously, this is a, a massive text. I'm not gonna, I can't fully exegete this. I just want to point out a couple of things here. Jesus tells the story of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It just means he's going down geographically because Jer- Jerusalem was higher. He's, he's jumped, he's robbed, he's beaten nearly to death. A priest comes by, certainly the representative of God to the people would help, but he doesn't. A Levite comes by. The Jewish tribe designated for the care of the worship of God, facilitating God's people meeting with God. Surely he'll stop and help, but he doesn't. And a Samaritan, someone who normally, the half-dead man in the road, probably wouldn't even associate with him. The Samaritan stops. The Samaritan was kind, he was generous, and we certainly could extract some lessons in, in kindness, bandaging his wounds, using his own money, paying for his care and so forth. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not how to be a good neighbor. You say, wait a minute, that's what my, uh, my Bible says here. I want you to know there's two important features. They both have to do with questions. First of all, the expert in the law of God asked in verse 29, who is my neighbor? And he would likely expect from Jesus a typical pharisaical answer which was more along the lines of love your neighbor and hate your enemies. He likely would have expected an answer of well, you really have to figure out who your neighbors are based on whether they're Jewish and based on this and that. But did you notice that Jesus didn't even answer that question? He didn't answer the question who is my neighbor? Instead, verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? The question he answered was, how do I prove to be a loving neighbor? How do I prove that? 
But there's a second feature, again, based on the question, that answer about how am I to be a loving neighbor was only the secondary purpose. Do you remember the original question that started the whole thing? In verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the real question. And notice the sinful, arrogant, prideful, darkened, black heart of this expert in the law. Verse 29, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The point of the story of the Good Samaritan is not how generous or how kind or how wonderful the Samaritan was. The point is not to exegete the details that he bandaged the wounds, he paid his bill and so forth. The point is to go back to the first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' answer to him is not a a works-based salvation answer. It's a new covenant regeneration answer. A new heart answer, a new person, a new inward attitude Based in the Holy Spirit's work. Verse 33. A Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. It means to have pity in the innermost, real, authentic part of yourself. That this was the real self. This was the real thing. The Samaritan felt pity from the depths of his soul. What was Jesus' point? Well, he's portraying the priest and the Levite the outwardly religious that you would expect to live in a godly fashion, they're false believers. And he's portraying the outcast, the enemy, as a believer as evidenced by the changed heart which has compassion, which has pity, which, uh, pity, which has care for your enemies. The genuine believer, the authentic Christian, has a heart so changed that you love even your enemies. Go back to Matthew 5, and we've been dealing with false confidence for quite a while now, the deception of false confidence, the disclosure of false confidence, and how Jesus has destroyed, he's rendered destruction of false confidence. I'd like to finally show you the delight of true confidence. The delight of true confidence. Verse 45 Jesus has said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. There's a loftiness. There's an accountability to this statement that God, who is most offended by sin because he alone is holy, that even God gives general grace to his enemies. He gives them sunshine. He gives them rain. He gives them a a world to live in. God shows kindness to the wicked at least while they're in this world. And then in verse 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the standard. This is what we elevate ourselves to. Now don't get hung up on the word perfect. We already know that our sanctification is progressive in nature that we will never in this life fully live up to God's Standard, perfect is used elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of, of mature, of wis- maturity, of wisdom. I don't want you to focus on the word. I want you to focus on the motivation. This is the second time, I just read them both, verse 45 and verse 48, the second time that Jesus invokes God the Father. But listen to how specific and how personal he is. Verse 45 Your Father who is in heaven. Verse 48, your heavenly Father. The motivation to love your enemies is vertical. It's it's motivation based on your Father. It's not a technique. It's not the latest relationship fad. It's not some psychological thing that says, well, you should show love to your enemies. By the way, all secular psychology always leads you back to doing something for yourself, that you love your enemies because it makes you feel good. It always comes back to self. That's why it's worthless. This isn't a technique. It's not a relationship fad. It's not some sort of reverse psychology that by loving someone that hates you that you'll break their defenses down. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's not horizontal ultimately. It's vertical. This is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because you have fear of your heavenly father. This is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because you have respect for your heavenly father. 
This is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because you remember the love of your heavenly Father towards you, how He's lavished grace on you who were once His enemy. This is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because you remember that your heavenly Father, amazingly enough, is fully capable of taking care of His own enemies without your help. That He can do that. Your treatment of those who treat you like enemies or those you have treated as an enemy. It's not about them. It's about your love for your Heavenly Father and your desire to be like Him. And you know this, who this gets out of the equation? You. You're not part of the equation. It is God the Father and you obeying. I'd like to apply these truths to two different groups and I'd like to tell you a story from the scripture that gives one of the most phenomenal examples of how to treat an enemy. It's really an Old Testament version of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The first two groups I'd like to speak to just for a moment. The first group I'll just call the falsely confident. The falsely confident. I've been mentioning this in the last few weeks. It's the whole reason for preaching through Matthew 5. I'm burdened. I'm saddened, I'm weighed down by even the very thought that in our midst could be those who are not truly in Christ. But Jesus promised that would be the case. He said there would be tares among the wheat. But the Bible tells me to preach the gospel to the tares. And so I would speak to the falsely confident that if you claim Christ and yet you continue in some worldly system of hatred, now certainly you would never call it that. Oh, I'll never hate anybody. But it's hatred nonetheless then you must seriously question your salvation. The regenerate person has left this behind. The regenerate person has a gospel concern for even the most difficult people in his life. And there's a second group I'd like to address, and that is the genuine believer who perhaps is in disobedience in this area. Followers of Christ do not take their cues from the world. The world has nothing to teach you about how to deal with your enemies, nothing whatsoever. Hatred is poison in a family. It's poison in a church. It's not permitted. We strive for unity. We strive for sameness of mind, not miniature feuds which are allowed to fester. And I want you to search your heart intently right now and ask yourself these questions. Who are those toward whom you're tempted to cultivate genuine hatred? And worse, who are those toward whom you're tempted to cultivate genuine hatred and be okay with it? Who are those toward whom you get the most irritated and angry consistently and you let it build up and build up? Who are those toward whom you've cultivated a superior attitude, looking down on them as if you are more righteous or more able to be saved or more worthy of salvation? And I have an assignment for you and a promise for you. The assignment is this. Those you have identified in your own humble assessment Pray for them intently for 30 days straight. That you will pray for them. Tell someone else. Be held accountable for this. As part of this, if possible, obey 1 John 2.15 that we love not just in word but with deeds. Demonstrate love to that person if they'll have it. And as part of that, stop taking revenge. Stop slandering and gossiping about that person, if justice is needed, God will take care of it, either in this life or in the life to come or both. And I have a promise. And maybe I'm idealistic, but I believe that we can be a purified church. I've heard too many stories, even this week on the phone with a pastor friend, of churches just riddled with the cancer of factions and feuds and people perpetually angry with one another. My promise on behalf of the elders is that anything of that sort that comes to our attention, we will lovingly help you with. Yea, even insist upon it. Because this is not our church. It's Christ's. All of you should be obeying this on your own. First Thessalonians 5 says, live in peace with one another. I'd like to tell you what you might call the Good Samaritan story of the Old Testament. 
The story of an amazing show of grace to an enemy. David's son, Absalom, began telling people in Israel how much better a king he would be than his father. Pretty slick the way he did it. 2 Samuel 15, 6 says that in this way, Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. He ran a successful campaign. Then Absalom put together a complex conspiracy to have himself proclaimed the king of Israel. A coup was underway. David has to flee Jerusalem with all of his servants. Absalom gathers men from all over Israel. He went personally to pursue David with the intent of murdering his own father and everyone who was with him. And so David's on the run from Absalom and and for the moment his kingdom is lost. He's running and he and his people come to a faraway place called Mahanaim. Now Mahanaim was far to the northwest of Jerusalem across the Jordan River, halfway all the way up to the Sea of Galilee and it was right in the middle of Ammonite territory. Remember the Ammonites? Remember what David had done to them? The people who humiliated David's servants, so David crushed them in battle. The people cursed to never be able to enter into the full assembly of the Jews. But 2 Samuel 17 records that Ammonites and other historical enemies of Israel brought David and his refugees, quote, beds, basins, pottery, wheat, Barley, flour, roasted grain, beans, lentils, roasted seeds, honey, curds, sheep, cheese. They brought them furniture. They brought them basins where they could clean themselves up. They could uh, anoint themselves with oil as, as as it was in that day. They brought so much food and drink. There was this overflowing of generosity. Why did these enemies of David do this? 2 Samuel 17, 29 says this. This was the rationale of the enemies of David. The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. What an example of God's grace through an enemy. And what an example by one of David's enemies of how to treat an enemy. This is no less stunning than the Good Samaritan, is it? In fact, it was so memorable It was such a grace from God, such a unique occurrence, such a lesson, such a a mind-burning remembrance for David that he wrote about it. Here's what he wrote. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Would you bow with me in prayer? And right now, as we go before the Lord, I asked you a moment ago to consider in your own heart those that you are tempted to treat as an enemy. And I'm challenging you to pray for them for the next month to pray until they no longer seem an enemy to you in your heart. I'm challenging you to obey both Romans 12 and Proverbs 25, that if your enemy is hungry, to feed him. If he is thirsty, to give him a drink, to heat burning coals on his head with that kindness. Our Father, we come to you now wishing and delighting in showing ourselves to be true new covenant believers in Christ, those who are truly regenerate, truly have come to saving faith, and you have given us a test. You have given us a proof, and that is that if we will love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we are found in Christ. We have a new heart. We have a new regenerate soul. We have a new mind that looks upon those who treat us as enemies with pity and with compassion and with hope that perhaps all of us could be standing before the throne someday, rejoicing in your goodness and in your forgiveness. May we rise to the level of 
the Lord Jesus himself. May we rise to the level of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, both of whom prayed, Father, forgive them concerning the very ones who were even killing them. May the members of Grace Bible Church demonstrate that level of grace and love such that we are light and salt to a dying world and we see others come to faith in Christ because of how we treat our enemies. And within the walls of the church, within the membership, Lord, may we never be smirched the name of Christ by treating one another as enemies, ever. May we have the humility and the resolve to reconcile all things for the sake of the name and for the honor of our Savior, the head of the church. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.